0: No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and today I'll be covering chapters three through six of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Eyes Guide to the Constitution by Ellie Mistal. There's also an episode of Mueller She Wrote out today, so please check that out. Give us a subscribe or a follow and leave us a rating. I would love that. And I want to take a minute to thank our patrons. We don't have any sponsors for today's episode. Um, we don't get a lot for the book club because I guess because I have so many other shows. <laughs> but uh, our patrons, you make this show possible. Um, you really, really do. And if you are a patron of the MSW book club, you are automatically for the same price, a patron of Mueller, She Wrote and The Daily Beans. You get all three shows ad-free. So thank you very much for as little as three bucks a month. Head to uh, patreon.com slash wrote to sign up or search for us on Supercast. It's really easy. And again, thank you so much to our patrons. You really do make this show possible. All right, let's begin today with chapter three on page 31 of the hardback edition. This chapter is called Everything You Know About the Second Amendment is Wrong. And Ellie opens by reminding us that it's impossible to have a conversation with a Republican about progressive policies without running into that person's interpretation of the Second Amendment. And that's true no matter what else Republicans know. He says, quote, I've met people who cannot accurately tell me how a bill becomes law, but they can quote the Second Amendment verbatim. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Here, Ellie refers to them as amosexuals people who fetishize guns but uh, can't win at Scrabble. And he points out that arguing with them is easily one of the most frustrating experiences available on the Internet today because their arguments aren't grounded in reality. They are based on fear. Quote, these people are willing to suffer the ongoing national tragedies of mass shootings. They're willing to ignore the epidemics of suicides and violence against women. They're willing to sacrifice the lives of school children, all so that they might feel a little less afraid when something goes bump in the night. We live in the most violent industrialized nation on earth because too many dudes can't admit they still need a nightlight, unquote. And when you ask them why, they will bring up the self-defense argument, or they might talk about hunting for a minute. And by the way, Ellie writes something hilarious here. I have to read it to you. He says, They might try to convince you that their right to sit in a tree covered in deer piss for five hours until a defenseless animal wanders in range of their military-grade sniper rifle shall not be infringed. Imagine you're a deer. You're prancing along, you get thirsty, you spot a little brook, you put your little deer lips down to the cool, clear water. Bam! A fucking bullet rips off part of your head! Your brains are laying on the ground in little bloody pieces! Now I ask you... Would you give a fuck what kind of pants the son of a bitch who shot you was wearing? But back to the self-defense argument. Ellie says that people often don't realize um, what they don't realize is that argument is new. And it's made up out of thin air, whole cloth, by the gun lobby, that self-defense thing. And and the right to self-defense isn't mentioned at all in the Constitution, by the way. Quote, what Republicans think is their strongest and most ancient defense of gun rights is actually a mere advertising campaign from gun manufacturers. And it came about in the 60s and 70s when the Black Panthers were arming themselves, and that was a very serious problem for racist Americans. That led to Ronald Reagan signing the Mulford Act banning open carry of loaded firearms in California. Soon after came the federal law called the Gun Control Act of 1968, which banned gun sales across state lines. Of course, no one was upset about those restrictions because they both fit squarely within the Second Amendment, So the government's authority to regulate guns wasn't always controversial. In fact, regulation is in the text of the Second Amendment, well-regulated militia, right? In fact, the final word on gun rights used, uh, used to be US v. Miller, which mandated registration, allowed for the taxation of guns and attempted to create different classes of firearms to make certain kinds harder to get. The court decided, quote, a shotgun having a barrel less than 18 inches long does nothing to preserve a well-regulated militia, and therefore the court cannot say the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such a weapon. They were talking about sawed-off shotguns, by the way. So the test was whether the National Firearms Act of 1934 had any impact on the necessity of keeping a well-regulated militia. The court decided it did not, and that there could be laws limiting the types of firearms people could have. We can all concede that the law uh, Reagan signed in 1968 to keep the Black Panthers from open-carrying loaded weapons was racist, but it didn't have anything to do with militia readiness, so it didn't have anything to do with the Second Amendment. Quote, America might as well have kept on its racist but rational track of adjudicating gun rights, but hardliners at the NRA really didn't like the Gun Control Act of 1968. And in 1977, gun rights absolutists took control of the NRA, and we can trace our epidemic of mass shootings back to those yahoos winning control of that organization. And this is where we get uh, to the meat of contextualism, right? 2A was not to keep people safe. It was to preserve white supremacy and slavery. 2A in the Constit- is in the Constitution because Patrick Henry and George Mason won their debate with James Madison. Henry and Mason wanted the Second Amendment to guard against slave revolts. And the principal way of quelling slave revolts was armed militias of white people. And the slavers were worried that the new constitution put the power of raising militias in the hands of the government, which was dominated by northerners at the time, and they might decide not to help the South should their slaves demand freedom. Madison eventually gave in and included the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights. And in 2008, Judge Scalia, Justice Scalia, excuse me, wrote the majority opinion in a case called Columbia v. Heller. This was the case that created an individual's right to own a gun for self-defense for the first time in history, 2008. I'm going to read part of that opinion, and Ellie wants us to pay close attention to how Scalia whitewashes the nature of Henry and Mason's reasonings for wanting the Second Amendment in the first place, Scalia's way of sanitizing the Second Amendment from its racist roots. And here it is, quote, The Anti-Federalists feared that the federal government would disarm the people in order to disable the citizens' militia, enabling a politicized standing army or a select militia to rule. The response was to deny Congress the power to abridge the ancient right of an individual uh, to keep and bear arms so that the ideal of a citizen's militia would be preserved. Scalia totally omitted the original rationale for the Second Amendment, and he had to. Otherwise, people might catch wise that the Second Amendment is illegitimate or that knowing the original intention was monstrous or both. And conservatives don't want the Second Amendment to evolve either, even though it should, because the founders couldn't know about how guns would eventually be used in suicides or mass shootings or domestic violence. But they didn't want it to evolve. They don't want it to evolve because they don't actually have a problem with the original racist intent. So that brings us to the homosexual in your life who argues that they need their guns for self-defense. 2A was never about self-defense. It was about menacing, intimidating, and killing racial minorities. Same reason no one had a problem with restricting gun rights when the Black Panthers started to use them. It's why the NRA has never uh, has a problem with when Black people are executed by street cops. In fact, Ellie says the Second Amendment could be rewritten to say this, quote, white supremacy being necessary to sec- the security of a free state, the right of white people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, and there'd be no difference to current gun laws and gun rights. So, until you can convince Republicans that shooting black people is not okay, we will get nowhere. Next up, chapter four. Stop frisking me, is what this chapter is called. And Ellie opens with a series of brief stories about all the times he's been pulled over for driving while black. He talks about the first time when he was in Indiana and he was speeding. The second time, when he was a designated driver for four white girls, and he tells us he recommends against doing that. (laughs) The fourth time, was when he was dropping his mom off at a school she was visiting in southern Indiana when the cops said to him, we just don't get a lot of people who look like you around here. But then he talks about the third and most terrifying time. At the time, he had a job doing event setups for the traveling Indianapolis 500 pace car tour. Uh, His job was to stake out locations, figure out where to park the pace car so people could come and take photos with it. That was his summer job between high school and college. He had a white partner, but they usually drove separately. And one night, Ellie was driving alone between Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Lafayette, Indiana, and a cop tailed him after he left a gas station. He wasn't speeding. uh, And eventually, the officer pulled around him to pass. And then a second unit appeared behind him with his lights on, and Ellie pulled over. When the trooper got to his window, which was already rolled down, by the way, the trooper said, it smells funny in here. And then Ellie asked if he should get his license and registration, and the cop repeated, it smells funny in here. And then Ellie came to learn that the next thing he said is probably what got him in trouble. Despite all the efforts of his parents and aunts and uncles to educate him on how to respond when he's pulled over by the cops, he said, uh, "quote, I don't remember precisely what I said, but it was something like, well, I did, I did get it washed the other day, maybe I maybe you should try it, or I just got it washed, maybe I need a refund." Something to that effect. He can't remember exactly. But then Everything happened very quickly. The cop told Ellie to exit his vehicle and walk to the front of his car, which he did, with his hands up. The cop told him to turn around, which he did, and then the cop body-slammed him into the hood of the car and said, Oh, we're going to see about that smell now, boy. The other cop was already searching his car at that point, tearing it up. The cop put him, the one that, that had him on the hood of the car, put him in some kind of full Nelson, dragged him to the shoulder of the highway, put him on the ground, and then put the full weight of his body on Ellie's back with his knee. And then the cop called for backup, and another unit was there immediately. Ellie presumes it was the cop that passed him initially and that they were all sort of working together. At that point, another cop took over the position on Ellie's back, and this cop was lighter, he said. And then the first cop stood back and started taunting him. We're going to find your stash. You're going to go to jail. Now, eventually, after the search, they they let him up, and one of the cops led him back to his car, the lighter one that was on his back the second time. Uh, which his car was ruined, by the way. The seat cushions were ripped out, the floor rugs were pulled up, and the cop smiled and handed him his keys and said, you drive safe now. They never once asked him for his license or a registration. Ellie says what he experienced was the vehicular version of what's called a Terry stop, named after the 1968 SCOTUS case Terry v. Ohio, where the court decided 8 to 1 that the Fourth Amendment still allows cops to lay their hands all over you If they had a reasonable suspicion to stop you in the first place, and that any evidence from that search can be used against you. Quote Very few black men will ever be arrested, but almost all of us have had a story about a Terry stop that nearly killed us. But the difference between the Terry case and what happens today is striking, Ellie says. In the Terry case, a white beat cop named McFadden saw Terry, a black man, walking back and forth about 12 times in front of a store in Cleveland. And after each lap, Terry would stop and talk to a different man, first a white man, then another black man. And the cops said they believed Terry was casing the joint, so they stopped him, searched him, patted him down, found a weapon, and charged him with concealed carry. SCOTUS justified the stop and frisk as a minor inconvenience that can be imposed on citizens when the cop has a reasonable suspicion. And Terry was supposed to be a narrow and limited decision to the specific facts of that specific case. Ellie says he doesn't think the decision was intended to morph into modern-day stop-and-frisk, but one of the two black lawyers representing Terry, and by the way, that was the first time a SCOTUS case was ever argued by two black attorneys, one of them named Stokes, knew exactly what the decision would lead to. He saw Giuliani and Bloomberg coming a mile away. And in 1971, New York passed its first uh, stop-and-frisk law, an attempt to codify the SCOTUS decision. That law says, quote, a police officer may stop a person in a public place located within the geographical area of such officer's employment, when he reasonably suspects that such a person is committing, has committed, or is about to commit either a felony or a misdemeanor defined in penal law and may demand of him, his name, address, and an explanation of his conduct. And Ellie says it should have been called stop and question because that's what the law here says, not stop and frisk. But Section 3 of the law was clear that the search could only happen if the cops had a reasonable belief, that they are or could be in physical danger. And then along came Giuliani. And Rudy and his police commissioner, William Bratton, took the stop and frisk to a whole new level with broken windows policing, arguing that aggressive prevention of low-level crimes like breaking windows would prevent the commission of more serious ones. Quote, racial profiling is the inevitable result of the degradation of the Fourth Amendment protections. But Ellie reminds us that the 14th Amendment makes it unconstitutional to stop someone because of their race, and he tells us we'll argue about that later in the book. But what is reasonable suspicion? He says, quote, absent any kind of psychic technology available to Tom Cruise in Minority Report, there is rarely an objectively reasonable suspicion that a crime is about to be committed, and that's especially true of low-level crimes for which no planning is required. Instead of reasonable suspicion, cops act on their unreasonable, implicit, and often explicit biases. Since 1971, lots of cases have been brought uh, to try and stop the racist policy. The most important was a class action suit called Floyd v. City of New York, and the federal court ruled that the city was engaged in unconstitutional racial profiling. Quote, which is nice, I guess. Racial profiling was already unconstitutional, but since so many white people think that racial profiling should be constitutional, it's always nice when a court reminds them that it is not. It just doesn't do a lot for a black kid trying to drive across Indiana this evening. Now, Ellie ends this chapter with a detail he left out of the Terry case. When one of the justices asked Officer McFadden why he had approached Terry and the other men in front of the store in Cleveland in the first place, the officer said, in all honesty, I just didn't like them. Next up, Chapter 5, Attack Dogs Are Not Reasonable. Here, we're talking about police discretion for use of force. And Ellie opens with the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014. Officer Darren Wilson shot Brown six times, despite Brown being unarmed. Brown's friend Johnson says that after a verbal warning for walking down the street, I guess, Wilson, while in his police cruiser, attempted to grab Brown by the throat. Wilson, the cop, claims that Brown went after his gun, so he started firing. Twelve shots total. Six hit Brown. Wilson tried to justify the 12 shots by saying he felt like a five year old holding on to Hulk Hogan. Ellie points out here that a five year old is about three foot five and weighs about 40 pounds, while Hulk Hogan was six foot eight and weighed 303 pounds. Now, Brown, the 18 year old, was six foot five and weighed 290, but Wilson was six foot four and weighed 210. Hardly a five year old. Ellie says, quote, in a civilized country, an officer's inability to tell the difference between an 18 year old black kid and a demonic giant on steroids would be grounds for immediate dismissal from the force. Police are the only people whose own cowardice and hysteria can be used to justify an objective misreading of the facts. And that rule comes from a 1989 SCOTUS decision called Graham v. Connor. The court ruled that a cop's use of force must be judged from the perspective of the cop. It's why cops always say they feared for their life after they shoot someone to death. Ellie calls it a flaming trash decision. The case is about a North Carolina diabetic man named Graham who went to a convenience store to get some orange juice to offset a reaction to an insulin dose. But when he got there, he saw the line was too long and he and his friend drove off. The cops decided that was suspicious. And, uh, uh, and that was Officer Connor, who happens to be black, by the way. And Ellie points out um, that he wants to remind us that black police officers can be just as racist as white ones. Connor followed Graham and his friend for about a half a mile, then pulled them over. Graham was suffering from an insulin reaction. He ran around for a minute and then passed out on the curb. That's when the cops cuffed him. When he regained consciousness, he tried to show the officers his diabetic card, but the officers weren't having any of it. And then a different friend approached and tried to have the cops let him give Graham some orange juice, but the cops refused. They decided Graham was just drunk. They slammed his head into the hood of a car and put him in the back of the cruiser, And Graham suffered a broken foot and multiple lacerations and then sued the police for excessive use of force under the 14th Amendment. But conservative Justice Rehnquist decided to only apply the Fourth Amendment to nullify the racial discrimination at the heart of the case. And Rehnquist cited Terry to justify that the search was reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. Quote, once you give cops an inch of daylight under the Fourth Amendment, they will brutalize black people for miles. Now, that decision has choked off any meaningful change to police brutality, and without 14th Amendment protections that Rehnquist ripped away, there's no longer a good way for victims of police brutality to bring racial discrimination claims against the cops. That now falls mostly on the Department of Justice, who can bring pattern and practice investigations, which is what they did in Ferguson, and those result in what's called consent decrees that allow the feds to monitor local police. But it's inefficient. And while Garland... Attorney General Garland has brought pattern and practice investigations back. The next Republican attorney general will probably stop them again. And state and local governments are reluctant to hold police to standards because of police unions. Even in super liberal California in 2019, there was some draft legislation that would have changed it from reasonable belief that deadly force was necessary to no reasonable alternatives. But the union shot that down and the no reasonable alternatives language was dropped and changed to necessary. And Ellie says that's not going to save anyone. Quote, bringing the police to heel will require us to stop letting them substitute their judgment for our constitutional protections. It's time to stop asking the foxes for their opinions on the security of the hen house, unquote. And that brings us to the final chapter we'll cover today, chapter six, called Why You Can't Punch a Cop. And here, Ellie wonders why he can't defend himself against armed agents of the state. And he says students of Western political philosophy would probably turn to Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan from 1861. And Ellie reduces that work down to one sentence. He says, if we let people kill each other, literally everyone would do it. So the only way we can have nice things is to let only one man kill people and hope he's not a complete asshole, unquote. But even Hobbes conceded that the right to defend oneself is inalienable. But that concept is in conflict with the Hobbesian requirement that the sovereign has a monopoly on violence. Now, we all understand the right to self-defense against non-cops, right? And that comes from old English common law, and it's incorporated into the American legal system today. But the right to self-defense used to include a duty to retreat. In America, we've sort of left that part out. And now the right to self-defense is one of the most provably racist functions of the law that we have statistics for. And laws like stand your ground make it worse. Take the case of Kenneth Walker, he was at his girlfriend's house watching a movie when three cops kicked in the front door unannounced. Walker reached for his weapon and fired into the dark and was met with a hail of gunfire. His girlfriend, Brianna Taylor, was killed in her bed. Walker was arrested and charged with attempted murder. Those charges were eventually dropped, but the Republican Attorney General of Kentucky decided the murder of Brianna Taylor was justified. Quote, "...the universe in which cops can break into a woman's apartment and shoot her dead, but her boyfriend can't fire back at the armed unknown assailants who killed her." is deeply fucked. And until recently, the Ninth Circuit Court recognized the provocation rule, which meant that if cops cause a violent confrontation while violating someone's constitutional rights, if they provoke it, they're responsible for all the damage that results. That in 2017, SCOTUS struck down that rule in uh, the county of Los Angeles v. Mendez. Angel Mendez and his wife were homeless and living in a shack in a friend's backyard. Uh, The cops were out around searching for an armed parolee, not Mendez, but someone else, and they came across the windowless shack, and without warrant or a knock or an announcement, they barged in. The cops allege Mendez reached for a BB gun, and then they opened fire. Thankfully, they lived, and they sued. But a federal judge decided the use of force was reasonable, uh, but the the Mendezes were awarded $4 million because the cops provoked the encounter. But the Supreme Court dismissed that jury verdict and overturned the Ninth Circuit's provocation rule. Justice Alito ruled the provocation could not lead to liability if the cop's use of force was reasonable. And the provocation rule fell victim to what's called qualified immunity, which I'm sure we all know what that is. But some level of qualified immunity should exist. You know, you don't want people suing meter maids for violations of the Equal Protection Clause because they ticket a car parked in a handicapped spot by someone who doesn't have a handicap placard just trying to make things easier for their elderly mother. But that doesn't justify making the Fourth Amendment unenforceable. An officer who violates constitutional rights should be punished in some way, but the courts have turned qualified immunity into sort of carte blanche for cops to act on their racial biases with impunity. And the SCOTUS is so broken when it comes to qualified immunity that dumb lawmakers have tried to fix it legislatively. Ayanna Presley and Cory Booker have introduced legislation uh, to, to end that practice, but Of course, Republicans have blocked it, and Ellie says these proposed amendments are merely a workaround for deep constitutional rot. And while Justice Alito is one of the most pro-cop jurists, Ellie reminds us that those SCOTUS decisions we just discussed were unanimous. Ellie says, I'm not allowed to resist the cops. I'm not allowed to sue the cops. All I'm legally allowed to do is beg the cops not to kill me and pray they don't choke the life out of me over eight minutes and 46 seconds. And why can't you punch a cop? Because by the time you're in punching range, it's already too late. Ellie says, my country and the courts have authorized these people to hunt me. As Cypher from The Matrix might say, if you see a cop, you do what I do. Run. Run your ass off. And that's the end of Chapter 6. I will be back next week with Chapters 7 through 10, maybe 7 through 9, maybe 7 through 10. Haven't decided yet. Uh, there's also a new episode of Muller She Wrote out today. I hope you check that out. And again, thanks to the patrons for making these episodes possible. You can become a patron and get ad-free episodes of this show, Muller She Wrote, and The Daily Beans by going to mullersherote.com slash, no, patreon.com slash wrote My bad. You can also search for us on Supercast and subscribe that way. I'll be back tomorrow with The Daily Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. And vote blue over Q. I've been A.G. and this. Is the MSW Book Club? The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media, and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter, and our art and web designer by Joel Reader and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.